Science has so much authority. Science has been our source of truth, if you will, about the world. And with that authority comes tremendous kind of responsibility. And so interrogating what kinds of views have been associated or what kinds of politics have been associated with the tools of science and technology is really important to understanding what kinds of politics they might still embody in the present. Science was the tool of imperial conquest and control, much as it has been the underpinning of enterprises that we are more inclined to celebrate. And so understanding how, for example, settler colonial ambitions were tied up with certain kinds of conservation visions and agendas, or how the kind neo-colonial project of development, this idea that so-called traditional or peasant cultures would be transformed into modern cultures through the transfer of technology from abroad. We need to interrogate whose agendas certain narratives serve and, and really whose agendas certain kinds of scientific tools serve. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer, and in this episode I talk to Helen Ann Curry, Peter Lipton Senior Lecturer in History of Modern Science and Technology at the University of Cambridge. She was a Pro Futuro Scientia Fellow from 2017 to 2020 and in residence at SCAS in the academic year of 2017-2018. As an historian of recent science and technology, Helen Curry is particularly interested in the entangled histories of modern biology and biotechnology, industrial agriculture and environmental change. During her time as a Pro Futuro Fellow, she worked on the book Endangered Maze, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction, which was recently published. And this is also what we will talk about today. And this is also the first episode in our theme, Genetics and Evolution. Very welcome to SCAS Talks. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. I've already said a little bit about your research interests, but very broadly, if you would describe it in your own terms, what is your research about? My research over the past decade and more has really been about the kinds of ambitions and visions that researchers, that farmers, that activists, that consumers have about science and technology, especially as, it, as it's used in developing new food crops and new possibilities for the farms of the future. Very interesting. And how come you got interested in this research area? That's a great question. When I started thinking about research in this area, I was particularly drawn to stories about how people imagined intervening in the genetic material of crop plants to, to create changes and, and develop new plant varieties for agricultural production, right, to change the foods that we eat. And interested in the history of those biotechnologies, I was especially drawn to these unusual stories that I hadn't heard much about that had to do with the early tools used to intervene in genes and in chromosomes. So things like x-rays and, and radiation and chemical mutagens, for example. So before we had the tools of genetic engineering as we know them today, 
scientists really tried out lots of different strategies for altering genes in the hopes of producing useful variation in crop plants. And it was really thinking about that history and telling that history in, in a first book project that I got to be really familiar with the history of crop science and of plant breeding, and especially of these ideas about what kind of tools and resources we might have available to us to transform agricultural production by transforming plants themselves. Yes. Well, in a way, we have always done genetic modifications, right? By crossing different lines and creating new seeds and so on. That's right. That's certainly one way to think about it. Humans have quite long history of intervening in the world, including in the realm of agricultural plants. So we and barley and oats and, and maize. And I think there is um, a lot of validity to the perspective that it's a matter of degree and maybe actually the kind of intensity of the intervention as opposed to a fundamental difference in kind when you move from crossbreeding and selection to other kinds of tools. But of course, people come down differently on that question. So um, our regulations certainly see things a little bit differently. I know. Maybe we come back to this later on. It's always a hot topic within plant breeding. But let's turn to your book then. Recently, your book came out, Endangered Maize, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. Can you tell us a little bit more about this book? How come you decided to write it to start with? As I've already mentioned, I had a, a book project that was thinking especially about early efforts at genetic engineering. And as I was in the process of, of working on that book project, I really came to encounter quite often an argument against the search for new tools for kind of engineering diversity into crop plants that really focused on the extent of diversity that existed already in the world as a result of the evolution of crop plants, of the process of domestication and the diversification of crops across cultures and across landscapes. And so I was always aware of this discussion of crop diversity, of the ways in which it might be collected and cataloged and characterized and put to use in plant breeding. And so I started to dive into that topic. I think it also helped that at front and center of many conversations in the world of crop science was the opening of new seed banks, particularly the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which is a backup collection, actually, of, of many of the world's crop varieties, which are held in other collections around the world. So I got interested in seed banking too. And ultimately trying to find out more about these subjects led me more generally to the topic of the history of efforts to conserve diversity. What tools, including seed banks, but also beyond seed banks, have researchers and others imagined as the instruments for conserving crop diversity? As the book explores, there's been a narrative about the loss of this diversity really since the turn of the 20th century. So I got interested in, you know, when and why scientists started worrying about the loss of diversity and then decided that the way to bring these stories together was really to kind of focus on one crop plant. Otherwise, I was in danger of having a story that really spun out across different domains of research, but also around the world to many more cultures than I could possibly encompass. So I decided to zoom in on the crop Zia maize, which is also known as maize or, or corn a key global commodity crop, as I'm sure all the listeners will already know. It's one that's also been tremendously important in the history of genetic research. And it's one that has huge cultural significance, especially in the Americas. 
so I used the kind of rich history of maize, the rich existing literature on maize, to then try and tell a story about how researchers came to believe that different varieties of maize were in danger of being lost forever, of going extinct, their ideas about what the consequences of that extinction process might be, and then the different strategies that they pursued in order to protect and conserve and really perpetuate that diversity over time. So just to go a little bit more into details, I mean, the title of your book is Endangered Maze, and you already mentioned some parts, but in what way is corn then endangered? What are the risks? Well, there's two ways to think about this. I think one is to say, when people have made a claim that maize is endangered, what is it that they've been claiming? And as I discuss in the book, especially plant breeders, but other researchers as well, botanists, plant explorers, and others have talked about maize as endangered when they've seen that certain varieties or what we think of as local varieties or sometimes called land races. And this is a concept that refers to kinds of maize that have been cultivated in particular communities and particular ecologies over many generations and so have diverged from their neighbors in terms of some of their features, but are, are readily identifiable as particular populations. So when these land races or these farmers varieties are thought to be endangered or disappearing, it's typically because the farmers who grow them are thought to be transitioning to different varieties, often the ones provided by professional breeders or by seed companies. Or because the farmers themselves have been seen to be transitioning to other kinds of activities, for example, migrating to cities, engaging in different kinds of labor over time. And so when a researcher refers to the kind of endangerment of a variety of maize, they have this in mind. They have a process of farmers abandoning the seeds of varieties they've perhaps cultivated for many generations in a particular place. So your book has the title Endangered Maze. And in what way would you say then, or what is your finding of the book, what you described there, how is corn endangered? What has happened? That's a great question. So I, I think there's two different ways to think about this. The first way of thinking about it is in terms of what, for example, scientists or other kind of professional researchers or administrators have meant when they think about maize as being endangered. And historically, what that has picked out in the world is their understanding that farmers who grow traditional varieties of maize, what we might think of as local varieties or land races, varieties particular to a, a certain place or a certain community, that researchers have seen farmers as transitioning away from the cultivation of those varieties either abandoning local varieties for commercial lines or the products of professional breeding, or they see that farmers themselves have transitioned to other kinds of economic activity. So migrating from the countryside to the city to take new jobs in, in kind of urban labor, the urban workforce. And so people observing this process have, over the course of the 20th century, tended to think of certain kinds of maize and indeed other crops too as in danger because without farmers to be cultivating local varieties from season to season, from generation to generation, they will transition out of existence. Without anyone to grow them, they simply won't be around anymore. 
And so the title of the book calls out this understanding of uh, sort of changing patterns of cultivation. And with those changing patterns of cultivation, the loss of certain kinds of crop varieties. I think the thing that's important to think about when reflecting on that vision of endangered maize, and which is what I try and kind of call out in the book as another way of thinking about this history, is that we don't necessarily want to take that story for granted. It's worth interrogating where certain stories about endangerment come from and what researchers and others have really been concerned about when they see maize as being endangered. As even my short description of their vision suggests, what's really been at the heart of an understanding of maize varieties as endangered is an idea of transitions in human communities. And so we see visions either of farmers being developed, quote unquote, developed from what has often been labeled as traditional farming methods into what is then thought of as modern farming methods, or, you know, the process of farmers losing land or losing the economic possibility of still working on the land and therefore not being able to continue cultivating maize. So there's a real way in which the underlying story of endangered maize is about a vision of losing crop diversity it's actually predicated on an acceptance of a kind of loss of human cultural diversity and the possibilities for diverse ways of, of living and being. And so what I really want the book to do and what I, what I hope it achieves is to really put that story of community transformation, of the position of marginal communities in different parts of the world, the ways in which their stories um, and experiences were written out of the idea of endangered maize at many points in its history, or indeed of other endangered crops, with the effect that some of the harms and challenges that they faced in the 20th century, as we saw many upheavals in, in agricultural transformation and economic transformation, their stories got separated from the stories of their crop and, and really lost, and that that was significantly to the harm of those farmers. And so I think the book really tries to bring that back into the picture and, and explore what the implications of really recognizing and addressing that story is then for the, the conservation methods that we draw on today. Sort of answers my next question. Why is it so important that we learn more about all this that you've written about? I'm a historian of science by training, historian of science and technology. And that's a, a subject that I got interested in because science has so much authority in the world we live in today. Although, of course, we're sort of wringing our hands all the time now about whether science is losing the authority that we want it to have. But for much of the 20th century and still now in the 21st century, science has been our source of truth, if you will, about the world. And with that authority comes tremendous kind of responsibility. And so interrogating what kinds of views have been associated or what kinds of politics have been associated with the tools of science and technology is really important to understanding what kinds of politics they might still embody in the present. Science was the tool of imperial conquest and control, much as it has been the underpinning of enterprises that we are more inclined to celebrate. And so understanding how, for example, settler colonial ambitions were tied up with certain kinds of conservation visions and agendas, or how the kind of 
neo-colonial project of development. So I mentioned this idea that so-called traditional or peasant cultures would be transformed into modern cultures through the transfer of technology from abroad. We need to interrogate whose agendas certain narratives serve and, and really whose agendas certain kinds of scientific tools serve. So that's a project that the book, and in fact, I would say all of my research right now is really engaged in. So one of the central topics in your book is the history and also the importance of seed banks. If we start with the basics for those who don't know, what is a seed bank? And can you walk us through on a sort of audio tour through some of the examples that there are? Absolutely. So the seed banks that I talk about in the book are also sometimes referred to as gene banks. And for much of the 20th century, and still in most cases today, seed banks are the central repositories, mostly scientifically or, or technically managed, of samples of seed or other plant materials gathered in many cases from around the world that scientists and others want to see perpetuated and kept safe for potential future use. So, for example, one of the first seed banks that I ever went to visit was the central collection of maize varieties that the U.S. Department of Agriculture keeps. This is in Ames, Iowa, and it is a, an agricultural research station with lots of with land facilities and resources for growing crops, different kinds of laboratory spaces inside. But a significant component of the facility there is a cold storage locker. You put on a winter coat before you walk in most often. And what it contains is rows and rows of jars of corn seed and the wild relatives of corn as well. And in addition, I should say that is a repository that collects many different crops. So there are seeds of other species in there as well. But the main idea is that, it, for example, in the case of the, of the maize or corn seed, researchers or other individuals who are interested in obtaining seed samples of a particular kind of corn are able to search through a database, identify what they'd like, and then inquire to this institution if seed is available. This kind of seed bank operates as a, it's not quite a lending library because the seed doesn't often come back, it's sending things out, but it is the central repository from which seed can be distributed and shared. And it has the responsibility of making sure that there are stocks available in order to do that. Now, that's just one kind of seed bank. There are many different kinds from local community-based seed banks that operate on a slightly different model that really are more like seed libraries in that they expect deposits to come back to them at some point. All the way on the other end of the spectrum, there is the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which I mentioned, which is not a depository that ends up ever sending out seeds, except in an extreme emergency in which the original source is lost. So it really is just a, a kind of backup site to which seeds are sent. Uh, and obviously, then there are different iterations all along the spectrum. But this idea of, at its most basic level, a room with many different seed samples collected identified and ready for further use. And I guess many people have seen at least pictures of the Svalbard seed banks sort of the entrance is in an ice mountain. So that's right. I, it is definitely 
absolutely the iconic one. So there's one example in your book, which was also published as an excerpt in the magazine The Scientist. And that was a text about the donation of a freezer to indigenous revolutionaries in Chiapas in Mexico. So what happened there? Why did they need and get a freezer and what happened after that? Yeah, so this is a story that's um, really important to me because it was a way into talking about transformations in the understanding of conservation and the conservation of crop diversity that took place, especially from the 1980s onwards. And that changing vision of conservation was about moving away from the static seed bank cold storage model. So this idea that you would put things in a refrigerator somewhere separate from farming communities like the seed bank in Iowa that I just described, and instead think about situating conservation at the heart of farming communities so that farmers would be part of the model of, of saving crop diversity. The example there that I talk about is uptake of the kind of agenda of conservation, especially by Zapatista revolutionaries in, in Mexico in the 1990s, which was sparked in part by the implementation of the North American Free Trade Agreement. This was an agreement between the U.S., Mexican, and Canadian governments about the free movement of goods. Um, and one very contentious element of that agreement was about the shipments of corn from the United States to Mexico and the removal of trade barriers to U.S. corn in Mexico. And around the time that NAFTA was being agreed was also the time that the very first transgenically modified corn varieties were coming online. So the first corn that carried genes from other species as a way of engineering uh, novel traits into them. These were not approved for release in Mexico at the time because of a worry that trans genes could move from the original crop to other populations of corn, even to corn's wild relatives, and that this movement of genetic material, this kind of unwanted and, and often unseen movement of genetic material might constitute, well, what some people thought of as contamination, genetic contamination of Mexico's traditional land races. And it was a, a worry that was particularly energized at the time also because of the aggressive policing of the cultivation of transgenic varieties by the companies that held patents on some of those varieties. So the concern in Mexico, not just for the Zapatistas, but others, was really about, you know, the further loss of autonomy and sovereignty, not just through the importation, the kind of flood of cheap corn that would come, to Mexico from the United States that would create additional burdens and trials for farmers already living on the margins in many communities, but also that it might subject corn, the very kind of center of, of a lot of cultural life, in addition to being the chief subsistence crop, to new forms of scrutiny and possibly even new forms of ownership and control from outside. So getting a freezer in order to be able to conserve one's native crop varieties in this context that I describe in the book. That was a vision in which 
conservation was tied up with not just farmer-led initiatives and farmer conservation, but also with an idea of sovereignty, right? Of being able to choose for oneself what corn to grow, what that would be like, you know, genetically, what political and economic controls might be able to be kind of articulated over it, right? The, so the kind of rejection of the neoliberal transformation, I would say, of the, of the economies of Latin America. And so all of these concerns came to be part of the new farmer-oriented conservation paradigm, this concern about sovereignty. And as I, as I argue in the book, and as I think many people would agree, that was a crucial transformation in terms of what the purposes of conservation were thought to be and what might be able to be achieved through it. You also wrote a recent opinion piece, also in The Scientist, which is called Going Beyond Seed Banks. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? What's beyond seed banks and why should we go there? The simple point that I wanted to make in that piece was really to call attention to, I think in the kind of public imagination and the dominant stories that we have about crop conservation, in part because of institutions like the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, there is this vision of seed banks, of the cold storage method as being really the solution. But for many of the reasons that I've already been articulating, seed banks don't address this issue of sovereignty for example, very directly. And so when I suggest this notion of going beyond seed banks, and I want to make clear, I'm by no means alone in making that point. I'm drawing on the history to make that point, but there are plenty of contemporary crop geneticists and others who make that point based on their research, breeders even. But when I say going beyond seed banks, I mean, how do we think more holistically about what kinds of work we want to do in the name of conservation. And that means, you know, what is it that communities need and what is it that farmers need? I think it also means going beyond this idea of, well, the limited ideas about endangerment that we have right now. I think there is this vision of that we are exposed to on many different fronts, and it, it draws a lot on the very real issues that we have in biodiversity conservation, especially when it comes to wild species. But we have an idea that the world has all of the diversity that it will ever have in it. And it is a, a kind of process of slow diminishment as we fail to take care of environmental and ecological issues. And while that may be generally true, or is certainly generally true in terms of the broad picture of biodiversity, in crop biodiversity, there are real opportunities to be generating diversity. So researchers have been doing amazing work since the 1990s and a little bit earlier, which shows the way in which traditional farming communities and kind of seed exchange networks result in the creation of new varieties, new land races, new combinations of genetic material rather than this view of all of the crop varieties that were ever developed, did develop and are now slowly diminishing as we transition to new agricultural models. And if we take seriously this research that shows farmer innovation, that shows community stewardship of diversity, that really speaks to diversity as something, yeah, that can be created as well as conserved, well then, that also speaks to the limitations of seed banks as 
conservation institutions. They're only good at dealing with one bit of the management of diversity, which is protecting that which exists. But they aren't necessarily, at least as they're mostly configured right now, so good at that project of contributing to the creation of diversity. And, and the question is, how do we develop that side of the stewardship of crop diversity? But isn't there this general idea that you have the seed banks also you can go back to the older seeds and sort of then genetically engineer back some good traits into the newer crops? Yeah, absolutely. That's historically been the vision and the motivation. I think most people would agree that today's seed banks are massively underused when you think about the extent of the diversity that they harbor and the ends to which that diversity is put specifically with respect to the crops that we grow in the field. So there's the potential for this connection to creativity, I think. And yet most of the studies that are done on seed banks and the ways that they're used show the limitations. We haven't had the resources to characterize the samples that are in seed banks in ways that make them useful to researchers, for example, right? So screening collections remains a huge kind of backlog or, or challenge for anyone wanting to work, especially with crop wild relatives. And so there are challenges like that, right? So we could, if we invested in the public research needed to make gene banks not the end point, but a brief stopover point before research is done to kind of move things out of the, the seed bank again. I think that's one important component. Another one is just recognizing the extent to which the agricultural systems that we've developed around the world, which have been incredibly generative in terms of increasing the pile of grain that is available, right? We produce more food from less land than ever before. Although I should say it, The amount of cultivated land is also increasing. It's just that we're, we're driving up um, yields and productivity in, in many places. But the systems that we have generated for both industrial crop production and then industrial food are not ones that are really conducive to diversification. And I think it's as visible when you drive through, you know, really significant industrial farming communities or regions. It's also visible when you're in the grocery store looking at the kinds of things that, that are available. And so the, in addition to thinking about the research that needs to go into crop science to enable researchers to make better use of the diversity that's in seed banks, we also obviously need to think about food systems that create opportunities for diversity to be meaningfully introduced. There are very many components to this question, I sense. I think that's right. As with most things in life, I think there's probably no easy answer. Yes, especially in this podcast. We almost always learn that there are no easy answers. So how shall we do it? Do you have any thoughts on this? The refrain that I often come back to, and that's been really striking in the research that I've done over my career to date on, on crop science and on plant breeding, is the extent to which privatization of crop science, privatization of plant varieties. So this idea that industry takes responsibility for the development of agricultural plants and that they can exercise intellectual property rights over new varieties. That has probably been the most important force moving against, say, a goal of increasing diversity in, in cultivation. 
I'm always inclined to think that an easy start is in thinking in terms of public research and the ways in which public research could be mobilized to serve underserved needs, underserved communities. This is why so much of agricultural research in the global south has historically still been situated in national agricultural research systems, but there needs to be more of that. And we need to restore the public research systems, for example, here in the UK, where I work, or in the United States, that have been over time really eroded by the demands, especially of private companies, that they not have competition. (laughs) That's a trend that we should really be worried about. It's obviously one that takes place outside of the research laboratory, but so much of the big questions that we face are these questions of, of how we organize our political systems more generally. Yes, as we said in the beginning, the breeding of crops has been practiced for a very long time. And now we have modern techniques. We have plant breeding, as you mentioned, by random mutagenesis, also by crossing lines, of course. So what what influence has that had in the past? And then I'm also thinking a little bit about the future, but we can start in the past with um, genetic modifications and the influence on farming and diversity and conservation. You know, the ambitions, say, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s for developing tools of what might be called mutation breeding, this idea that you could induce a genetic change that would give you new traits that you wanted to see in crop varieties. The ambition for those technologies, or I should say the reality of those technologies, never lived up to the ambition set out for them. So although you still see people today working in in the realm of mutation breeding, it's not been as important as a successor set of technologies of genetic engineering, which is recombinant DNA technologies or transgenic technologies. So these were tools that came out of molecular biological research in the 1970s, where researchers were able to splice genetic material from distinct organisms together into a single DNA molecule. And that that had profound implications for creating crops that could express traits brought in from wholly different species. And those in countries where it has been legal to cultivate those varieties, which is not everywhere in the world, but in places where transgenic crop varieties have been adopted, they have in many cases really actually become predominant in certain crops, especially the big commodity crops, so maize, soybean, cotton. And so from the kind of failed, if you will, genetic technologies of the mid 20th century centered on mutation, transgenic technologies really did seem to prove their value in terms of producing crops that could be marketed and have been marketed and sold and continually kind of further developed. What I would say, and I think your question was leading in this direction, was about the implications thinking also about diversity. When transgenic tools were first developed, researchers made some of those claims about finally making use of gene banks that you mentioned a bit ago in the conversation. This idea that gene banks would finally be 
as usable and as used as, as was always imagined because we now had this technology for kind of going in, taking out the gene of interest, putting it right where we wanted it to be, getting those crops in the field and, and making use of it. So there was the idea that transgenic tools would produce a diversification or could produce a, a diversification of crops. The reality has been significantly different in part because of regulation, in part because of the returns to research and the economic costs of doing some of this work. Predominantly, just a handful of transgenes have been commercialized, and they have been commercialized across crop species. So you see corn varieties that have of the, some of the same gene constructs that, say, cotton varieties would have. And so the diversification, not necessarily genetic diversification, but the diversification of crops that was imagined by some as a potential payoff of really developing transgenic technologies was in many ways a deepening of the problem of homogenization and, and similarity, in part because of the replication of this same gene across, across many different varieties and also many different species. And basically, they are, I think, was it two traits that are predominant in these transgenic crops? One was resistance to pesticide and the other? That's right. Two traits. So the BT gene, which gives resistance to certain insect pests. And I say BT gene, it's actually several different gene constructs which are involved. So not every BT crop has the same genetic material. And the same is true actually of what are called Roundup Ready. These are crops that have a genetic material that allows them to resist some kinds of herbicides. So they have herbicide tolerance. So there's two traits. There's a number of different genes that are used to produce those traits. Do we have to talk about the elephant in the room, uh, Monsanto? The thing to say there, I think, is about privatization. I think Monsanto has come to stand in for some of the some of what are larger trends in terms of agricultural production and food production and the ways in which this has come to be the responsibility of a very small set of quite powerful actors. So you people talk about big agriculture and people talk about big food. And this is the notion, if you have an opportunity to look at the charts that illustrate the consolidation of the agriculture and food industries over the second half of the 20th century in particular, the mergers and acquisitions have produced just a handful of mega companies where we used to have hundreds of companies. And so I think Monsanto and its pursuit of control over you know, seed production and its use of an enforcement of patents as part of that process, I think are emblematic in many ways of a much broader phenomenon that we need to grapple with. So a little bit, a look in the future. You're an historian, so I have full respect, but we can just spin off and speculate a little bit. We have now new technologies like the gene scissors, as they're called, CRISPR-Cas9, which allow you to make very precise modifications in, in the DNA, which is also a lot easier to use than other transgenic methods. And that is sort of a new promise to to do some of the things that we have talked about, to introduce new traits and more diversity and so on. So what do you think about those possibilities that are presented now to the research and also the farming community? Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear from the research that's out there, at least the extent that 
I know it and understand it is that there are some incredible possibilities that come along with these tools in terms of being able to modify different species and the traits that they possess. Especially, I think, exciting is this idea of taking what are sometimes thought of as neglected or forgotten crops. So things that aren't in widespread cultivation, haven't been subject to a lot of research and breeding, and actually moving them very quickly to the point where they could be more widely used or adapted to new climate constraints. I think the challenge is really in having technologies be used to serve the project of creating greater global equity or more socially just food systems, which they should be able to be used for. I think that will depend actually on the regulatory systems that we see in place, the intellectual property that's applied to these tools or the crops that are produced by them, which is to say that I think As we have seen in the past with transgenic technologies, there does exist a lot of possibility there, but it will take having a broader social, political, economic systems that are able to facilitate technologies being used to serve different purposes than they have been in the past. So you're done with the book. It's out there in the shops or online. What is up? What is next? What are you working on? Well, I'm still thinking a lot about the history of crop development and agricultural transformation. Even while I was still in the midst of my ProFutura fellowship, I was plotting and planning and put together a, a grant application that was successful to the Wellcome Trust here in the UK to support a five-year research project on telling new stories about crop science, uh, especially getting away from a very narrow view of breeders and genetic researchers in particular as being the most important of all the different kinds of knowledge and, and work that go into developing crop varieties, to think about everything from plant exploration, botanical exploration, to plant health regulations and quarantine, to prevent the spread of diseases, to database management and curation, all sorts of different kinds of research that go into supporting the research that in turn produces the foods that are on our dinner tables every night. So I have a team of researchers at Cambridge who are picking up different pieces of that story, and I'm working on putting together a synthetic account that will bring those together and hopefully offer us some new thoughts about where our foods come from and what kinds of research we might want to be thinking about doing more of in order to facilitate research that does serve, as I was just saying, equity and injustice in critical ways. So in everyday life, when you shop or prepare your food, are these things that you think about? They are, they are. And I'll just give you one example. We make bread here at our house and we're privileged to be able to do so certainly. But one reason we do it is because we buy a grain variety that was developed here in the UK at a research station, organic research station called Wakelands Farm. A wheat variety that was developed specifically to prioritize genetic heterogeneity 
So it was a mix of land races were brought together and then selected over many generations to develop a line that would be just sort of stable enough to pass through regulations, but would possess significantly more genetic diversity and therefore ideally be resilient to environmental changes from year to year in ways that it's kind of competitor seeds that have followed more traditional breeding patterns would be. And so that is the kind of decision that, again, I say I feel privileged to be able to make, but is really important for me. There are people out there who are thinking in creative ways about not just conserving diversity, not just you know growing heirloom seeds, but also innovating diversity. And those are the, the enterprises that I try and focus my attention on. And when you pop your popcorn, you think about maize. I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I have in the cupboard right now a, a new variety that I have yet to try of red maize seeds for popping. As I mentioned in the introduction, you were a Pro Futuro Fellow for three years, 2017 to 2020, and in residence here at SCAS, where I am right now, in 2017-2018. How was your stay here at SCAS? It was absolutely marvelous. I would go back and spend another year at SCAS in a heartbeat. You know, the first week that I was in residence was the week that I started writing the first chapter of the book Endangered Maze. And so it very much took shape from one of the offices there in the building. And I'm deeply grateful for the opportunity that I had while there to think and work in such a focused way. And to share conversations with researchers doing all sorts of incredible research. Yeah, exactly, because GAS is a multi and interdisciplinary environment where you get to meet scholars from a lot of other disciplines. How has that influenced you and your research? Well, while I was in residence at SCAS, there was another historian who was there, Rebecca Earle. And Rebecca's research project at the time was on the history of the potato. So I was working on a history of maize. She was working on a history of the potato. We had many conversations, wasn't quite as interdisciplinary, but certainly as informative as conversations can go over lunch in terms of the things that we were working on and thinking about. So that's just one example of the crosstalk being cross-crop talk, I guess, at the lunch table. Yes, we will have Rebecca Earle as a guest uh, later on during the spring on this podcast, talking about potatoes. You had this fellowship for three years. How has that influenced your academic career? Well. So I guess there's two very clear products. One is that I was able to get the book out, having that time period set aside to really do in-depth research and writing was critical to getting that project completed. And it also gave me the space to think about what would come next in a more expansive way than I otherwise would have been able to. So the project that I have now, which has nine other researchers at the moment associated with it is really in some ways, especially for a historian, a, a really quite big project. I wouldn't have had the space to really plot out what that would look like, much less to be able to convince other people to fund it had I not had really the Pro Futura Fellowship to sustain that sort of thinking and that kind of ambition for research in the time that I had. 
these experiences that you had at SCAS and during your fellowship, how do you implement that now in your research environment and in your bigger research group now that you have? I mean, if we could have lunches, we've been very constrained by the pandemic. The project started in August of 2020, so in the middle of the still ongoing pandemic. And we've only actually been able to come together as a group more recently. But I will say in selecting postdocs and also PhD students to join the team, I have been adventurous in selecting fellow researchers who come from a variety of different disciplines. So it is an interdisciplinary space in terms of we've got a development sociologist, an agricultural anthropologist, PhD students coming from science and technology studies, coming from conservation leadership, coming from history as well. And so the conversational mix and the exchange of ideas and the energy that's produced by having people who come from different directions is something that I hope I've reproduced a little bit of. Thank you for joining us and talking to me and our listeners. Thank you for the opportunity to be on the program. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. You have heard Helen Curry, Peter Lipton Senior Lecturer in History of Modern Science and Technology at the University of Cambridge and Pro Futura Sciencia Fellow from 2017 to 2020. She was in residence at SCAS in the academic year of 2017-2018. We have talked about her recently published book Endangered Maze, Industrial Agriculture and the Crisis of Extinction. And this was the first episode in our theme, Genetics and Evolution. This spring we are featuring the following topics, gender, Latin America, genetics and evolution, and also developmental issues and human rights. This was the 33rd episode of SCAS Talks and we now have quite a variety of themes reflecting the multi- and interdisciplinary research environment of SCAS. Our previous topics include the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, diversity, global governance, the brain, Africa, life in outer space, life sciences, infrastructures in Asia, citizen and state relations. We are sure that there is something of interest for everybody. Check out your favorite topic or even better, dive right in and discover something completely new. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. As always, we are very happy if you can recommend this podcast to a colleague or friend. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank Helen Curry once again for joining me on SCAS Talks. And of course you for listening. Bye for now.